The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 30th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. 35,000 nurses who are members of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation went on strike at 8 o'clock this morning. 25,000 patients will be without their care over the next 24 hours before the INMO members return to work at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. 2,000 people who were due to undergo surgery today have had their operations cancelled. 13,000 people who have had their outpatient appointments postponed will also be affected and ten and a half thousand people will not get a visit to their home by a nurse or get to see a nurse in a day care centre clinic. A&Ds will provide a reduced service and minor injury clinics are shut. Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO, joins us now and it's amazing the impact this will have on so many people in a 24-hour period. What do you say to them this morning? Well, uh, as we said before, nurses and midwives don't want to be on strike. Our nurses would much rather be at the bedside caring for patients today than on the picket line. Um, We have endeavoured for a significant period of time, I think we wrote to Pascal Donoghue back in August of 2018, seeking engagement in order to address this issue. Um, It's been outstanding for a significant period of time and despite engaging megaphone diplomacy and talking to the media and writing newspaper columns, he hasn't actually met with the INMO or he hasn't engaged with us. But with regards to those patients, it is regretful that within the health service currently, every day we have nurses that have to make phone calls mm. to patients in the morning saying your procedure today has been cancelled. The minister himself has said in the doll that 3,400 cases, elective surgeries are cancelled every month in the health service because of overcrowding within emergency departments and overcrowding of hospitals, infection control outbreaks and staff shortages. And what we're saying, unless we deal with the issue of nurses and midwives' pay, unless we deal with the recruitment and retention crisis that we have in nursing and midwifery, mm. we won't have a health service. And more. And, and more what do you want from the minister? Uh, I mean, do you want the minister to roll sleeves up, have a look at this uh, and uh, decide whether or, or, or not you're entitled uh, to a pay increase? Yeah, yeah, we do want him to roll up the sleeves. There's no point in him talking to us through the media. It's time that he actually engaged with us. Well, well what about him talking I, to you through the arms of the state, which you've uh, oh, signed absolutely. up to? I mean, you're, uh, you're, you're signed up to the pay, Public Service Pay Agreement. Yeah. The Public Service Pay Commission said that, uh, on average, uh, staff nurses are earning €51,000 uh, and that the pay levels are not affecting recruitment. Well, they didn't say that. They said that there wasn't a general problem with regards to same, but they also said that they couldn't rely on the figures that were provided by the HSC because they believed they were inaccurate. And they also outlined that there was a problem um, with regards to recruitment and retention. And every nurse and every patient out there would be able to tell you that there is a problem with recruitment and retention. The reality is that we have words. We have theatres throughout this country that are closed. We have beds that are closed because we don't have nurses and midwives to open them. Are you sure that this isn't just a case of very well public pay, public sector workers, uh, very well paid public sector workers wanting to be paid better? No, it's not about that. The reality is that we have... 51,000 euro on average. 
no, but that that is incorrect as well because nurses start on a salary of twenty eight thousand. That's less than fourteen thousand after tax, um, and that goes up to a scale that's just in the early forties. Uh, so the reality mm. is that nurses don't have a big salary. They pay 50 to 60% of that back to the state uh, in tax. No, well, and, and, and what we're saying I, to the government is... I wasn't talking about starting salaries, Tony. I was talking about uh, what the Public Service Pay Commission said was the average salary for a staff nurse. No, we don't accept that. That is not the average salary of a staff nurse. And you can ask any nurse. And, and in response to that, nurses started putting their pay slips up online. Uh, on social media so people could see the reality of the pay for nurses. That figure that's portrayed out there from finance and others is inaccurate. They've Mm. basically added up every nurse uh, that works within the system, including all the senior nurse managers within the system, and they've averaged the salary. It is not an accurate reflection of the nurses and midwives that work on the front lines within our hospitals and within the community care sector. The reality is here, we won't have a health service if we don't address the issue of nurses and midwives pay now. We already have services closed. We already have beds closed. We already have hospitals at 100% capacity that can't cope. We're not going to solve that problem. We're not going to be able to build additional bed capacity. Mm. The bed capacity report is a minimum of uh, 2,600 beds need to be built. We won't be able to open those if we don't have the nurses and midwives. We won't be able to implement slanta care. So the reality is, and the government need to realise that, if they want to have a, a health service that can provide for the uh, demographic changes that are occurring, the older population uh, that is prevalent now from all, all the sea, uh, mm. so, uh, statistics, etc., they need to address the issue of nurses and midwives pay. And nurses and midwives are paid 7,000 less than other graduate professions within the health Why? They also work why? longer hours. Because it's historic. But, and why is it historic? Tell us the history of how the INMO agreed to this. No, well, it's not that we agreed to it. Originally, um, nurses and midwives didn't, wasn't a, a degree profession. Yes. That changed in 2002. And in 2002, what we were promised at that time was that once you're a graduate professional, we'll deal with the issue of pay. But unfortunately, time has gone by and that issue hasn't been dealt with. And what we're saying now is that nurses coming into the system have had degrees since 2006. And the reality is now that you need to correct the incorrect pay that has been applied to them for so long. So that needs to be addressed. And we're saying to the government that can be done within the Public Service Stability Agreement. We clearly understand that. And when we were in talks in the Labour Court on Tuesday, on, on Monday night... But, um, but you're, going on, you're going, on, you're, you're going on strike. You're going on strike about a position that you've been agreeable to for 15 to 20 years. No, it's not just about that. It's about recruitment and retention. It's about the fact that we cannot deliver a public... Is it about the leadership making its mark? I mean, the last time uh, the INMO, when it was the INO, went on strike, uh, you had a new general secretary. Liam Doran was only a wet day in the job. 20 years on, Liam Doran has resigned and you have a a new general secretary. uh, And Phil Hay, uh, a wet day in the job and the nurses are out in pickets. No, that's not the reality because Liam Doran was pursuing these issues as a general secretary when he was the general secretary when he retired over a year ago. So these things yes, but are he, well in train. He, he well wasn't striking. And we're, and, but the reality is, no, no. but what he was was negotiating as part of the Public Service Stability Agreement a clause that would look at the recruitment and retention crisis within nursing. And Section 3 of that allowed for the issue of nurses and midwives pay to be examined mm. and that that exercise would produce a report. Our issue is that that's unfinished business because the key requirement with regards to Section 3 was that when the Public Service uh, Pay Commission issued this report, and it must be remembered, it's a Public Service Pay Commission, yet 
the Minister Donoghue went in on the 26th of October 2017 and told them this is not a pay review, nor can it be. That fundamentally changed the terms and conditions that were negotiated with Liam Dorn and the INO mm. prior to our members accepting the PSSA. So the reality when is you went on strike, nothing, it, nothing to do with the general. Well, when you went on strike, when you went on strike. 20 years ago, uh, there was only two-thirds as many nurses in the country as uh, there are now. There was 25,000 nurses uh, as members of the INO in comparison to 35,000 members of the INMO. Um, but the reality is that the health service has grown exponentially since then. Um, the number of patients uh, and indeed the population requiring services, we can compare in any location. ED attendances are going up by 10 to 15% mm. every every year. Uh, the number of uh, procedures that have been done has increased as well. Because before people came in a day or two before a procedure, were prepped for that procedure. Now we have day of surgery. So massive efficiencies have been dele- de- delivered within the health service. Lots of it led um, by nursing that has delivered a much greater service to the public. But the reality is this. We cannot keep beds open. We cannot keep theatres open unless we have nurses and midwives to staff the wards and look after patients. And a lot has been and, done and, in respect of that. And if and, uh, the but, trolley but, figures but, uh, in the hospitals, if the trolley figures in the hospitals are indicative of the pressure on the hospitals, is it true to say that uh, some of the best performing hospitals in the country are in this region? Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, uh, the Louth County Hospital in Dundalk and Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. And if if that is the case, why are patients not being seen to in those hospitals today? And aside from that, why are elderly people not getting uh, the treatment uh, that they deserve in clinics and so forth today? The simple answer is that the government has forced nurses and midwives to the picket line rather than engaging in talks to resolve this issue. We don't, as I said before, we don't want to be in dispute, but we've been left with no option. And we're keen to engage with what, the government. What's the dispute, what, what's the dispute in Drogheda? Well, the dispute is that we we do have a problem in Drogheda with regards to recruitment and retention, and we've had that problem for a significant period of time. The issue with regards to performance in ED, Drogheda was one of the top three worst performing hospitals in the country with regards Mm. to ED overcrowding. There has been significant improvement as a result of the ED agreement that was reached in 2006 between the INMO and the HSC. And now people won't be seen today. And the fact that management were proactively... And what's going to happen in Drogheda tomorrow and Friday? There's going to be huge numbers of people waiting because they were denied care today. Isn't that the truth of it? Well, no, the reality is that every day in Drogheda and every other service, there are massive amounts of patients on trolleys for a Not in Drogheda. Not not in Drogheda. No, well, it has had significant problems in that regard as well. It has improved and it has a bit... Two, three, four, five would be the average amount of people on trolleys in Drogheda. But 100,000 people spent time on a hospital trolley last year waiting for a hospital. Not in Drogheda. The worst on record. I accept that in Drogheda, but there are Mm. still challenges... So why why are nurses not working in Drogheda today? Because we've balanced our members throughout the country. It's an aggregate vote of all our members in the in the 26 counties, and our members have voted by a mandate of 95% in favour of industrial action, including mm. the nurses in Drogheda. Okay, because but the money isn't there. Did you, did you hear what the Taoiseach was saying yesterday about Brexit uh, and all of the challenges uh, that the country is facing? We know about the housing crisis uh, and some of uh, the other issues, including uh, the fact that their nurses are public servants, and there's many other public servants, and how this could run uh, to 
an enormous bill if uh, the government was uh, to cede to the demands which uh, the uh, the Public Service Pay Commission has said is not a problem in terms of recruitment. Uh, And if you think back to the 1980s when midwives in the National Maternity Hospital offered to give up part of their money to limit staff reductions uh, and uh, maintain a high standard of care, what has happened? Why 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 are nurses greedy now? No, they're most certainly not greedy, and that is not the case because nurses have already. They're very different than the nurses in the nineteen eighties, aren't they? We're taught. We're taught. No, nurses have given significant money back to the state during the crash. Indeed, they many cuts were imposed upon nurses and midwives in that period. But agreed to by the INMO, and was that not the time to be making your objection? No, the reality was that the, the, the country was in a diff- different space at that time. But is the money there? Of course it's there. They've given $300 million to the junior bondholder in Anglo Bank. They, they have made money available to pay an increase to allowances to TDs and chair committees in the Dáil and to increase the salary of uh, TDs in the Dáil. Of course there's money there. What we're saying is there's significant waste within the HSE. The money is already there. They're spending $100 million a year mm. on agency nurses. A hundred million to supplement. When they have a report, a task force report on safe staffing in the Department of Health that was published last April that says if you stabilise the workforce, Mm. ensure that you have nurses and midwives at work, you have the proper skill mix in place, you'll reduce mortality rates, you'll reduce the length of stay, you'll deliver better service to the patients, but you'll also retain nurses and midwives. For the third best, for the third best paid nurses, for the third best paid nurses in the world, uh, according to some research, and we We've debated that on the programme previously with Phil Hay, and I'm sure we could debate it forever and a, a day. But if that, that if that is wrong and the pay is much better elsewhere, why don't the nurses just go off and work somewhere else then? But they are. And yeah, well, sure, sure. Why, sure, sure. why are they outside the hospitals protesting then? You'll, you'll, because we can't have a health service unless we have nurses and midwives. That's because they're responsible. They want to stay in Ireland, but the reality is they're being forced to go overseas. And we've seen protests. But they're, they're not being forced. They're, they're not being forced. They're, they're, not, they're obviously working in the Irish hospitals. Yes, but uh, we're losing them. We're losing no, the battle. But they must have enough money. They, they must have enough money to work in the. They must be getting paid enough money to be able to work in the Irish hospitals, to uh, uh, have a house, buy a house, rent a house, go on holidays, have a car, whatever else it is that they need in their lives. Uh, but is it not true to say that they just want more money? No, they want to be recognised for the graduate professional that they are. They're being paid 7,000 less than other graduate professionals working alongside of them. That's an issue that needs to be addressed. On top of that, we're not winning the battle with regards to that. By the way, we're not the third best paid uh, nurses in the world because that's people are going to the UK, they're going to Canada, they're going, and you have to look at English speaking hospitals. It's not normal that Irish nurses would go to France or go to Italy or go to Slovenia. They go to the UK, they go to Australia, they go to Canada, and they go to the US. Well, I doubt they go to the Philippines. No, they don't. They no, don't. Hmm. But also, but also, what we're doing in this country is we're bringing in nurses from India and the Philippines, and the service would not uh, be able to be maintained. And, and the HSE is, but the HSE is wasting money. They're, they're paying ten thousand to twenty thousand for every Indian and Filipino. But aren't they coming here from India and the Philippines because of the high rates of pay? 
No, they're coming here for about a two-year period on average, and then they're going on to Australia and Canada and other places like that. That's the reality. That's what we are in a worldwide market now for nurses and midwives, mm. and we are losing that battle. And what nurses and midwives want to do is the government to engage with them, to sit down at the Labour Court or wherever it is and try and resolve the mm. issue. But haven't they you have signed up? Have haven't you signed up to the public service agreement? Absolutely, and we're and, covered and by it, and we're still compliant with it. Well, you're, go- you're going to be. You're not compliant with it because you're striking and you're going to be penalised for that. No, we don't believe so because we are saying we've been forced to go out on industrial action because of the inaction of government as part of the PSSA, Section 3, deals with the issue of recruitment of attention. This can be dealt with within the public service well, agreement. That's as, why as, as I understand it, as I understand it, you're doing quite well because nurses who are working today, uh, those uh, who are providing emergency cover are to be paid, uh, which is different to the situation in 1998. Those nurses weren't paid because it, it was considered to be an all-out strike by the government. So that is a concession this time yes, around. Our members are working, they're providing yes, and they will be paid. Uh, th- those who are not will be penalised uh, and are to receive something from the INMO. What will they be yes, receiving from you? They, they will receive strike pay as per the normal How rules much? of the organisation since ninety nine. And uh, we have put that in place. That's uh, the matter between us and the members. And we're well, what's your what's your war chest? Because you've several days of strike action uh, to go yet. You've uh, another five days on top of this planned, I think. So, what's your war chest? How much can you afford? How many days action can you afford to fund? Significantly more than the six days that we've notified. So we can go on longer. Our aim, though, is to try and get a resolution to this dispute. And we're concerned okay. next week, and management have said this to it, the, the dispute will have a bigger impact because it's on a Tuesday and a Thursday. But our aim is to try and resolve this dispute. As I said, nurses and midwives don't want to be in the picket line. They want to be caring for their patients. But that requires the government to engage with us, to come forward with practical and realistic proposals to resolve this dispute. And that's what we expect from government. And I think the general public know that. We don't want to be on strike. We'd rather be looking after patients. But we've been left with no choice. And if we don't take this stand now, we won't have a health service into the future. Tony, thank you indeed for joining us as always. Tony Fitzpatrick is a Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The eyes to the right, 318. The nose to the left, 310. So the eyes have it, the eyes have it. It is now clear that there is a route that can secure a substantial and sustainable... ...substantial and sustainable majority in this House for leaving the EU with a deal. We will now take this mandate forward and seek to obtain legally binding changes to withdrawal agreement that deal with concerns on the backstop while guaranteeing no no return to a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And my colleagues and I will talk to the EU about how we address the House's views. Simply opposing no deal is not enough to stop it. The Government will now redouble its efforts to get a deal that this House can support. In light of the defeat of the Right Honourable Member, the Leader of the Opposition's amendment, I again invite him to take up my offer of the meeting to see if we can find a way forward. 
Mr Speaker, if this House can come together, we can deliver the decision the British people took in June 2016, restore faith in our democracy and get on with building a country that works for everyone. And as Prime Minister, I will work with members across the House to do just that. Could I say that we are prepared to meet her, to put forward to put forward the points of view from the Labour Party of the kind of agreement we want with the European Union to protect jobs, to protect living standards and to protect rights and conditions in this country. It's exactly the offer that was made last September, exactly the offer that was made two weeks ago, and I look forward to meeting the Prime Minister to set out those views to her on behalf of my party. Now, that was uh, some of the interaction in uh, the Commons yesterday. Uh, The British press is uh, somewhat positive, although the rest of the world seems to be shaking its head. The Guardian this morning somewhat more in line with Europe uh, than uh, the rest of the British press, saying May goes back to Brussels, but EU says nothing has changed. The Daily Mail front page three says, Triumph on night of high drama, PM wins key Brexit vote, unites her party, crushes Corbyn and tells the EU, let's do a deal. The Daily Express says she did it. Now it's up to the EU in one of the most remarkable turnarounds in political history. Our indomitable PM unites her party and receives the mandate to return to Brussels with Parliament's full weight behind her. The Times may unites Tories behind fresh talks with Brussels. The Daily Mirror's front page headline may deal back from the dead for now. The Financial Times says May's move to rewrite Brexit deal sets collision course with Brussels. The Daily Telegraph says May takes the Brexit battle back to Brussels. And The Sun says back stop from the Brink MPs. Yes to new border plan. Labour delay bid defeated. Well that's uh, the coverage in uh, the papers in the UK today. Although, whilst there may be some triumph about a deal there, I'm not sure who they struck that deal with. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that later in the programme. Let's talk about some of the local newspapers now, because it's Wednesday morning. They should be in your shops. And Marie Kearns is here to tell us what's on the front page of the papers in Louth Meath. That's right, Michael. And we'll start with the Meath Chronicle. And concern that a vital bus service in Meath is facing the axe is the story that makes the front page of that paper today. And Casey is reporting about fears for the future of a hugely successful Navin School initiative which sees 54 students from a suburb of Navin brought by bus to school each day and that has halved the rate of absenteeism and brought attendance up to 94% among students from that area. So there's a lot of concern about that if it goes. Inside the paper in 18 and 19 there's a fascinating read about the rise and fall of a surgeon originally from Meath who was jailed last week in the UK for fraud. All right. Uh, well, there's a lot of talk of a hard border across uh, the world, sure uh, particularly is. in these islands, but no hard border in the Argus. That's, that, that, well, that's right. That's hopeful thinking, Michael, and is the lead story in the Argus. Olivia Ryan there is reporting of dramatic scenes at Carrigarnan. Um, I think that's how it's pronounced, Michael. It's at Carrigarnan last week as hundreds of people turned out to protest against the return of a hard border against Brexit. We covered that last week before it happened on the mm. show. And Olivia's reporting about the 
mock custom checkpoints that they had there on the day. And I also have to mention the eye-catching picture on the front page of the Argus, which was taken on the day by Ken Finnegan and really captures the whole atmosphere. All right. Well, a, a lot of coverage of what happened in Carrick Arnon, no doubt about that, and uh, quite understandably so, given the way it was dramatised. Uh, but let's go to the devastation of uh, the Mulligan family in uh, Dundalk. And this features on the front page of uh, The Democrat. Yes, Mike and devastated is the stark headline I suppose it sums up the feeling of the family of the late taxi driver Martin Mulligan following that sentencing on Monday when his his killer was jailed for just six years and Michael moving away from that then on the front page of of the Dundalk Democrat you've heard the word fashionista I'm sure have you Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, this is how about Trashinista? Mm-hmm. And there's super coverage in the Democrat of the Loud County Council, Loud Tidy Towns Together Trashin event, which was held last week. And there's great pictures inside the paper of that, too. Lots of creative uh, costumes. All right. Uh, made from rubbish, I take it. That's right. All right. Let's uh, go to the leader in Dundalk, and uh, they're leading with sport. Yes, they're shining a spotlight on the town's young sports stars this week after another memorable weekend on the sporting front, which saw some of Dundalk's most talented young athletes once again make the mark on the national and international stage. So well done to all of those. All right, from the leader in Dundalk to the leader in the south of the county and the strike in Drogheda at the hospital. That's right. That's the front page of the Drogheda leader today and the advice to people to avoid the A&E department in Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Drogheda if possible during this planned 24-hour strike, which of course kicked off this morning. Inside the paper has a story about plans to build a 10-storey apartment tower block, Michael, at Mill Lane just off Trinity Street there in Drogheda beside the Bridge of Peace. According to the paper, if given planning permission, there's a proposal to have 23 one-bed apartments and 18 two-bed apartments. So watch the space on that. All right, and uh, we'll finish up this week with the Drogheda Independent and uh, they're paying tribute uh, to uh, the loss of uh, much uh, honoured member of the community. That's right. Considered one of the all-time GAA greats, Liam Leach, who passed away last week and a lovely tribute to him in the paper. Meanwhile, on page 23, a story that caught my eye is a about a report, a report about a staggering 84% of workers in the Eastmeath area who leave the district to work every day and that's well worth a read. And finally inside the paper on page 15 LMFM is making the news Michael the paper's reporting on the station's new weekday 11 to 1 show which starts on Monday and of course will be hosted by the ever talented and energetic Sinead Brazel so we're all really excited about that. Alright that's very disappointing isn't it? What's that? Uh, that it's on page 50. That should be on the front page. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think the Drive Independent did their research. I've been talking to Sinead and some of uh, the people behind uh, Sinead's new programme, which is starting next week, and it really is very exciting. I think it, it should be on the front page. Uh, and uh, we wish Sinead, of course, uh, the best of luck with we that. sure do. Thanks, Marie, for that. And everybody uh, who is listening may want to make comment on some of uh, those stories. If you're one of them, uh, you're welcome to contact us now. Or if there's uh, something else you've been hearing or if there's an issue 
you that you'd like to raise with us. As always, we'd love to hear from you on our telephone number is 185715958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Yeah, let's talk about uh, some of uh, the problems in uh, Drogheda. Drogheda has problems uh, with traffic and uh, Drogheda, I think it's true to say, has uh, problems with drugs. Labour Party councillor P.O. Smith has been raising issues in relation to both of these problems. He's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining morning, us. Michael. Uh, you met with Louth County Council, yes, uh, I think about the drugs problem. Well, there was a meeting yesterday in uh, in Drogheda yesterday, and the politicians weren't at it, and I wasn't at it, but it was part of the process that myself and Jed Nash put together with Chief Executive Joan Martin and Low County Council before Christmas. So Low County Council have agreed to be the agency that's going to coordinate an approach from uh, all of the different agencies involved in the town and how we might develop a plan to go forward to address the issues around drugs and uh, intimidation and also in around disadvantaged families. So uh, it was a good meeting. Mm. I, I heard yesterday the guards there, the HSE, probation, the council, some local residents, uh, loud leader partnership and education training boards. Okay, uh, and possibly uh, the education training board, uh, the most important player and diversion, uh, the most uh, important prevention better than cure type of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's invest to save pro, uh, uh, scheme. Really, we're looking at mm. doing here because I mean, if we can invest in young people who are disadvantaged and who are vulnerable, and in communities that are in a similar situation, then we can save in the long run, and uh, we can make the society a better place for everyone. And that's the approach that we're trying to take. And in fairness, uh, some of the organisations that were there yesterday are coming up with some very innovative ideas. So, I mean, if we can if we can coordinate this approach, put a plan together and uh, and implement it then over a five-year period. Mm. But it's going to cost yeah. money. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It's going to cost money. And well, already people will have to be patient as well. And uh, some of that money may be better spent than uh, some of uh, the other money because uh, I suppose uh, there's a trial and error aspect to this as well. Yeah, there's a trial and error aspect to it too. Uh, but we can look at what happened in Blanchestown. We can look at what happened in Limerick mm. and we can ju- reduce the number of errors uh, because they've learned how to do things better in those two areas. Uh, I mean, another interesting approach might be to look at can we have a cab fund for Drada? Because if there are significant cash uh, seizures in and around the town uh, from uh, drugs gangs, can that money be used for the local community and to invest in the local community? Uh, it is done in other areas, and that's mm. something that uh, the guards and the HSE can inquire about doing here in Drada. And I think that's an interesting development. Also, looking at seeing can we develop a community policing forum? Uh, for the town, similar to what was done in in Ballymun in Dublin, uh, you know that's something that the guards can get involved in. Okay, um, well, I suppose we're at the beginning of a, a process, uh, and we'll watch that as it progresses over time. As I mentioned at the outset, uh, another issue in uh, Drogheda is uh, traffic, uh, and uh, we talk about this in the context of another process, the process of saving St. Lawrence's Gate. Uh, that's long over with, and uh, the gate has been saved uh, in uh, the view of uh, the people who campaigned uh, for a change in how traffic is routed through the town. There was concern at the time that this would result in some problems and that's come to fruit. Yeah, uh, I think I think you were one of the people yourself that was kind of highlighting an issue in, in, in and around the Cod Road area. Uh, and there is some problems in around that area. So there's problems going up Constitution Hill and there's problems down at the bottom of Sandyford Terrace and, and uh, uh, the, two, the, the, the one-way system that's there at the moment. And 
like recently I've, I was walking up the Cod Road and there was a guy, a delivery guy, who was trying to drive up Sandy for Tarascon through the, through the one-way system. And I was telling him, look, you can't do that. You're breaking the mm. law. I got an earful off him and I gave him an earful back, to be honest with you. Uh, and uh, But it's not the first time and the last time I've seen that happen. Uh, no, uh, it would be wrong to say it happens every day uh, because it happens many times every day. Yeah, it does. I mean, lots of residents there have been on to me about it. And look, we have to find a solution to it. There is one yellow, there's, the road markings are all saying no entry, and there's a yellow, mm. small yellow sign basically indicating the same thing, and people are ignoring it. Well, it's a very small sign, uh, and I, I'd be familiar with it, and you could forgive people for accidentally going through it because they didn't see it. Uh, but there's many people who were doing it intentionally as well. Yeah, uh, there are people doing it intentionally. So the council are looking at two things. They're looking at a increasing the signage and restricting the width or else making it a two-way system. And why is uh, it one way? Well, you know, something I never re- received an answer as regards to why it's one way. That's just the way that was designed initially. Uh, like, it's similar even in, to the point you were making before about coming up Constitution Hill. The vast majority of drivers I see who come up Constitution Hill drive straight through. It's the uh, right. It's the right of way issue. You'd assume that you have the right of way because you're on a hill, uh, and uh, you run the chance of somebody running into you. Yeah. Or you run exactly. into somebody, yeah. Mm. Exactly, exactly. And then there's also the problem about trying to cross over from uh, the junction of Francis Street and, and Cod Road at, at, at Lawrence's Gate. Uh, there was supposed to be a pedestrian crossing put there. It was agreed by the council, and it isn't there. So, uh, look, there are problems there in those two areas, and, and they have to be addressed. And it's probably with the grace of God, nobody has been struck. Uh, and there's, there's young children playing around that area as well uh, on, on, on bikes. So we have to address it, and, and they're the two issues that the council are looking at how to address it. Extra signage on making it two-way. Mm. And is it an issue that the council has said it will give its attention to? Is it intent on changing this somehow? Yeah, uh, it is, because uh, just before Christmas, there's, you know, people, councillors and, and citizens can actually print uh, requests for low low-cost improvements in various areas, and I put in a request for low-cost improvements in and around the Cod Road area, so at Constitution Hill, and I had uh, the town engineer down at that section that were talking about the bottom of Sandy for Terrace. Uh, so there was an application of €3,500 per in, and if that funding is successful, we'll know mm. now in the, next, uh, in the next month if it is, then those two areas are going to be addressed. And you hear people uh, talking about uh, approaching a one-way street to the Cord Road and telling you that they have to look both ways. Uh, because if they don't, uh, of course you should look both ways, but they, they tell you if you don't, uh, there's quite uh, the chance that you'll come across a car going the wrong way. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you drive down the bottom of Sandy for Terrace, you can mm-hmm. go right or go left. And uh, if you go left, you can f- see a car coming towards you very quickly and very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I mean, that's the reality of it. I mean, look, there are some people who get behind the car and they just forget about other people. And they're like clowns driving around in the machine mm-hmm. that can hurt people. And uh, all they see is where they're going themselves and they forget about anybody else. Uh, and it's, uh, the, it's the, the three points, really, uh, in uh, this rerouted section of uh, the town uh, that it was suggested may be problematic, that it proved to be problematic. Uh, that uh, first section that you mentioned at Sandyford Terrace uh, and the Cord Road, the top of Constitution Hill being the second one, and then the top of Francis Street, in particular for somebody who's turning right. Yeah, because uh, when you get to the top of Francis Street, if two cars are, are similar, one going left and one going right, both are blocking the view left and right. So you have to kind of 
uh, wait for, for, for one car to move car, off. Car, car, car cars are blocking the, the, right, the, the view right, aren't they? I mean, cars that are legally parked. Yes, uh, across the Medis hardware and... Uh, the other yeah, side. Yeah, there's a restriction on the sidelines mm. there mm. In, in, in relation to looking at cars coming down Scala Street. Uh, and particularly at, at, at peak traffic times. The other thing about Scala Street is that there's a lot of, a lot of people who speed on that area. Mm. Uh, so sometimes uh, you, you're pulling out from Francis Street and you take your life in your hands. It is a dangerous junction. Now, that isn't one that is being looked at by engineers in relation to any additional measures. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe if they're listening, they'll give it some consideration. All right, Pia, we have to we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us today. That's Labour Party councillor in Drogheda, Pio Smith. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and uh, text messages uh, that have been coming to us uh, this morning. And uh, I think you've had a few calls since you were in with us last some time. Some people are not happy with you this morning, Michael. Okay, okay. Uh, some people are and saying that a mixed bag coming in. In relation to the interview at the top of the programme with Tony Fitzpatrick of the INMO, Helen McGardle got in touch to say, Hi Michael, you're giving that man a hard time. The nurses are right to strike. And you said, the government said yesterday they can't afford to give the nurses a pay rise, but the government give themselves a big pay rise before Christmas. Now, I think it's time for the nurses to get on the street, says Helen. Okay. What a dope Michael is. Nurses work so hard. Has he ever been in hospital? Sheila wants to know. Yeah, I have for quite a, a long period of time. I'm... <laughs> Sad to say, well, but I was delighted to get the wonderful treatment uh, that was available to me from the people that do such sterling work in the hospitals, namely the nurses. Well, this answers the question that came in from another listener. A text, I'm a patient in the Lord's Hospital for the last 15 days. I'm waiting to have an operation and I don't mind waiting for as long as it takes. I've seen firsthand of the dedication of the nurses. Shame on Michael Reed, the way he is defending the government. I hope he ends up being a patient. Then he would see for himself the wonderful work that the nurses do. It's not a job to them. It's a vocation. Shame on you, Michael Reid. Okay. Very disappointed with the interview regarding nurses. Does not suit your good station, says Richie from Tala. Uh, Mary and Trim, those days the nurses are getting well paid. What they are doing is holding the patients and the country to ransom. There's no need for this dispute at all. It's patients that are being affected. It's not fair, says Mary. Lisa from Navin says, give that man a chance to talk, Michael. Uh, another listener uh, says from Navin, I'm waiting for heart surgery for almost three years, so this strike will put me back even further. I hope, I hope the nurses freeze with the cold today. Mm. So not too much sympathy there. We got an email in from a listener to say no amount of increases to nurses pay will stop young nurses emigrating to see the world, especially when they know they can return when they want to, to massively well paid jobs. Another increase will probably encourage that even more will emigrate now. The strike is all about greed and getting above themselves because they now have a piece of parchment. A nurse said to the radio this morning the patients will be getting even better care today with skeleton staff. What does that say? Patients are getting better care with thousands less nurses. That says it all and that comes in from T.R. Alright, well thanks uh, T.R. and everybody who's been in touch with us so far about the nurses' strike, I suppose to some degree that's our listeners' verdict on that. We heard uh, this morning the British 
paper's verdict on uh, the uh, Brexit Commons vote yesterday. Uh, and I did say the rest of the world is wondering what it means uh, because uh, the UK has agreed with itself on what it would like to do and that's uh, to go forward with Theresa May's deal without the backstop. So that's not an agreement. So what is the agreement? Because what they have voted for is alternative arrangements to the backstop. What does that mean? Well, the Brexit secretary in the UK is Steve Barclay, and he was asked exactly that question on BBC Radio 4 this morning. Well, we always already have an indication of that if one looks at the political declaration. Paragraph 27 makes reference to the use of technology. There was also in the House last night debate in terms of what was known as the Malthouse Compromise, looking at uh, how we can get experts to engage again on that, uh, looking at within Just the Brexit amendment issues such as time limits. Exit close. Well, again, actually, I think rather than getting into perhaps the, the technicalities of it, I think the wider point that came out of the debate last night was you had people who had previously rebelled against the government from the Remain side, such as uh, Nicky Morgan, uh, the member yeah. for Loughborough, and you had people that had rebelled against the government from the Leave side, such as Steve Baker, the member for Wickham. Forgive Coming me, Mr Baker, these are the all points about goodwill. how you manage the Tory party, not about how you manage the country. Let me ask you again. You say the backstop well, actually, the has vote, to last, change... Let, just a second... What are the alternative <laughs> arrangements? Well, I was just coming on to that, but just when you say this is about the Conservative Party, the vote went through, actually, uh, with support from Labour MPs as well last night. But the point I was driving at was the question that had come from the European Union was what is it that Parliament will support the deal with? What is it that was required? Because both sides recognise Well, indeed, they the want to know what's the, the alternative also, to the backstop. Let me ask you again, Mr Bulkley. Indeed. What uh, well, is the alternative to the backstop? Well, that's what we're exploring in terms of, as I say, the use of technology, the use of uh, You're looking at things it. like the so time Theresa May is going to go to Brussels exploring something. You don't have an alternative to the backstop. No, I mean, we've seen in the language from the European Commission in recent days themselves a recognition on their side, the, the comments of the tea shop. there's no desire uh, on either side to have a hard border. There's a common ground in terms of a desire to address this. The but concern you don't that have European this colleagues had said, an alternative to the backstop. Well, what I'm saying is there's a number of options. There's issues in terms of having time limits, issues in terms of exit clauses, issues in terms of technology, and this will be the nature of the negotiation with the European in the coming days. A uh, number of options. Uh, that's uh, the Brexit secretary, Steve Barclay, being asked, what is uh, the alternative to the backstop? Uh, the House of Commons has voted for Mrs May's deal if there's an alternative to the backstop. Did you understand what his alternative to the backstop was? Not really, Michael. Well, he did. He, he did go through a few things. He talked about cameras and uh, different systems uh, that could be put in use that they might explore. But the fact of the matter is, is that Europe has said no to all of this. And Nick Robinson of BBC Radio 4 asked Steve Barkley if Mrs May understood what no meant. Well, we always already have an indication. Let's hear what... Uh, that's because that was the wrong clip, I beg your pardon. As I say, Nick Robinson asked uh, Steve Barkley if Mrs May understood what no meant. We have heard President Tusk say... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. No, we've heard President Juncker say no. We've heard Michel Barnier say no. We've heard President Macron say no to the idea of changing the backstop and reopening the negotiations. What part of no, non, nien does the Prime Minister <laughs> not understand? Well, the Prime Minister has been told no no in various forms in the past, and we've seen with the way she stands up for the national interest how she has overcome that. She was told, for example, at the start of this, you in fact many times put this question to her, that there would be an only option of Canada, the -the off-the-shelf option. She actually secured in the negotiation a bespoke model, something that hadn't been done before. You have pressed them in the past in terms of saying, well, the Northern Ireland uh, backstop uh, is only Northern Ireland. It couldn't be beyond that. Uh, that was a key red line for the European so Union. So they're going to shift their okay. position, you Actually, say. they moved on They that. don't mean what they oh, said. It's a negotiation. Yeah. No, it's a negotiation, and we often know that these things uh, are done at the 11th hour. Now, the idea that uh, Europe might uh, change its mind in uh, the 11th hour was possibly the only interesting thing uh, that the Brexit Secretary, Steve Barclay, had to say in uh, that interview with Nick Robinson on BBC Radio 4 this morning in terms of uh, a solution being found in this ongoing impasse. We'll be talking about this a little bit later on with our Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee. But back to the comments. And back to the nurses strike. Shame on Michael says Tom is trying to blacken the nurses and their wages. No fear of him going on strike while sitting in his cosy seat and warm little nest in LMFM on his wages, most likely three times more than nurses, while nurses are worth three times more than him. Shame, Michael, on you. By the way, Michael, I have no problem putting off my appointment in support of the nurses. Okay. John was not happy with how you conducted the interview with the INMO rep. Fields was very aggressive in how you spoke to him. John also wants to know if Michael will disclose his annual earnings live on the radio this morning, considering on how keen he is to repeat the nurses' annual salaries. All right. Well, uh, if you want to get permission uh, to do that, I have no problem doing that. Uh, I don't think I'm allowed to do it. Uh, I think uh, that private companies, uh, which LMFM is, uh, don't do that. And they would tell you that it's uh, for commercial reasons. Public paid people, uh, public servants' salaries are public knowledge because they're funded through the public purse uh, and it's everybody's business. Theresa from County Meath says it's obvious from listening to the show this morning that Michael isn't particularly fond of the nursing profession. She feels you're being very unfair in some of your comments. The nurses do such a wonderful job in very trying and for the most part thankless conditions. Mm. She says they are angels in human form and she fully supports their industrial action. Okay, well I, I have to rebut that. That's not true. I'm very fond of of how nurses do what I believe is amazing work. I'm not sure fond. I, I, I'm in great admiration of uh, the wonderful work that they do. I couldn't do it uh, and uh, I, I didn't express any opinions to be honest. I asked an awful lot of questions uh, but uh, I suppose that's uh, what happens in the course of an industrial dispute uh, and uh, the questions uh, that are asked of one side are very different uh, than those that you'd be putting to the HSE or government ministers. 
the final one on this, mm-hmm. Teresa is a nurse herself yep. and has been working for many years now in the health service and she'd love to know where you're getting your figures from. She has nearly 30 years of experience and she earns €40,000 all in, nowhere near the 50000 plus being mentioned by the HSE and others. She was disgusted with your interviewing of Tony Fitzpatrick, feels you interrupted him constantly and for a rage you're presented to suggest if nurses are not happy with what they earn then they can go away is appalling to say the least. Michael has obviously not experienced what it's like for a family to say goodbye to a loved one when they have to go abroad to earn an adequate living. Presenters are supposed to be neutral and not pushing their own thoughts and feelings across. Okay. So that's that. Can we go to something yesterday because I had one or two comments that I really would like to get to. Have we time? If, if we're, if we're one, one even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were talking about the phone scams and I did a, a call from a listener who listens in all the time, didn't want to be named, but she suffered a bereavement just before Christmas. Her daughter sadly passed mm. away and she says in the days following the bereavement, she obviously had a lot of phone calls, a lot of messages went to her answer machine. Mm-hmm. And at the end of one day when she went to her answer machine, she had a total of... Um, what was it? Nine calls, she says, from somebody purporting to be from a service provider to telling her about that her broadband and internet will be cancelled in 24 hours. Now she says, I haven't even got broadband or internet. I'm 82 years of age, Michael, and it really was so upsetting for me that I kept getting these messages. Okay, well that is uh, very upsetting uh, and uh, tells uh, the story I I think very well in that uh, they're not really calling about your broadband. Uh, They're calling to get your credit card details or your money in some other way. So be careful and be warned. Thanks indeed uh, to that lady for telling us that story. Thanks, Marie, for relaying it to us and to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. And our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's talk uh, to the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee. Good morning. Thanks, Minister, morning, for Michael. joining us here on the programme. As always, uh, the House of Commons is set and ready to do a deal. Are we willing to put in place an alternative arrangement to the backstop? Well, you're right. And good morning, Michael. Um, the House of Commons last night voted through two amendments to the Prime Minister's initial proposal from last week. Uh, the first one, which narrowly passed by about eight votes, rejected the UK leaving without a deal. Um, now, while that doesn't have any legal underpinning and that doesn't suggest how they do it, I think what it shows is that there are numbers there, if not possibly uh, more in the future, to reject a no deal. The second vote essentially says that the House of Commons would support an agreement if the backstop is replaced with an alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I suppose from this point of view, what, firstly from the EU point of view, uh, they have consistently said that we're not going to open the withdrawal agreement, we're not going to go back uh, on the backstop. Uh, we saw that from Jean-Claude Juncker earlier on in the week when he spoke to the Taoiseach. We saw that from Sabine Moyenne, who is uh, second in command to Michel Barnier in these negotiations. She very rarely comes out and, and speaks mm. publicly. Well, we were just she hearing from that. Steve Barclay and we were hearing uh, uh, how uh, Europe has said this sort of thing in the past uh, and uh, changed its mind in the 11th hour. Well, I think what we heard from Stephen Barclay this morning uh, when he was pressed and he refused to answer it in the House of Commons yesterday, but they actually don't have any alternative arrangements. So they just... He said they, were, they would explore them uh, and there was all these other things. But the, the, the bottom line is Mrs May is going to go out to Europe and say, look... 
uh, you asked us uh, what we wanted. You were saying, you were telling us what we don't want. Now we're telling you what we want. We want this deal without the backstop. What, what the Prime Minister is now coming back and asking for is something that they have been repeatedly told they can't have. Um, you know, there's a discussion now as though this is a game of chicken and that there's mm. the EU side and the UK side and that we need to meet somewhere in the middle. We've done all of that. The time for, for negotiating and sides being looked at has happened over the past two years. Are you we very surprised, Minister, at how Mrs May has changed her mind? How she has said, day is night, black is white. Uh, she's uh, been far from honest, really. Uh, I mean, she gave a commitment that the backstop would be part of the deal. And now she's asked MPs to vote against the backstop and she's going out to Europe to say she doesn't want the backstop. Absolutely. And and I think disappointed is the word that I would use. Um, it's the word that many of my colleagues from throughout Europe who I've spoken to this morning have used. The Prime Minister herself as recently as last week was not only championing the backstop but insisting that this was necessary. It was necessary as part of the withdrawal agreement but that it was also necessary to protect the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. What we saw last night was the Prime Minister essentially reneging on those commitments, um, encouraging her own party and others to vote against um, the withdrawal agreement as she and her team had negotiated. Is Is she somebody that you would consider to be a person of good faith? Well, we have trusted the Prime Minister throughout these negotiations. Is she trustworthy? And I think that we need to be able to continue working with them, as I've said. Is she trustworthy, Minister? I, I do believe that she is, but I think last night is regrettable. I think. Did she make a liar of Leo Radker? No, I don't believe Well, Leo Radker said it was uh, bulletproof, didn't he? Again, we've had a commitment from the Prime Minister for two years now, from, mm. in fact, the whole of the UK government. I think it's disappointing. Is the backstop bulletproof, Minister? I absolutely believe that the backstop is bulletproof. I believe that the commitments that were made still need to be upheld. I don't think it absolves the UK, the Prime Minister herself, when the vote passed last night, while she said, I will take this, this is what you have voted for, Mm. I will go back to the EU. She said the EU have been very clear in saying that this is not what they want. If you ask me... You know, I I think it's very clear that this is not going to be going anywhere. Donald Tusk, who's head of the European Council, within about six minutes had issued a statement. And those of us who have been engaging with the EU continuously could have told you before the vote even passed Mm. that that was going to be the response. Of course. I'm surprised it took six minutes. I'm sure the statement was written in advance because I I think uh, there was uh, the expectation that the outcome would have been what it turned out to be. Uh, But uh, when Leo Radker said that the backstop agreement with Mrs May was bulletproof. Uh, he, he didn't expect this, obviously. So has Mrs May made a liar out of the Taoiseach? Well, I don't think the Taoiseach was lying at the time. No, and but again, has she... Uh, uh, regretful that the Prime Minister has reneged or has gone back on her own agreement. This so she's not very trustworthy, she is she? To negotiate. Well, we're in a position now where... The Prime Minister will most likely come to Europe with proposals. We've heard, as I've said, from Stephen Barclay, who was the Brexit Secretary this morning on mm. BBC Radio, saying we don't actually have any other proposals. Where, you know, the three that we've been given is extend the, the or sorry, to uh, have a unilateral clause, to have a, a time frame on the backstop, or else to look at technology. All of these have been looked at. The Prime Minister knows that all of these have been looked at. 
And essentially what we're going to find ourselves in a situation is that in two weeks' time, there will be another set of votes. The fact that, as I've said, and, and while there was no legal underpinning mm-hmm. to the other vote that was passed last night, the fact that there was a majority, albeit by eight, but a majority to reject a no-deal scenario, what the Prime Minister needs to do now, I believe, is having gone to Brussels, having, and she will be told the negotiation uh, and the withdrawal agreement is not for reopening, she then needs to engage with her House of Commons, mm. with political parties, to see where they go next. And I think the, one positivity from last night is the fact that Jeremy Corbyn, when invited to speak to the Prime Minister, he said he accepted this, and obviously yeah. the last time he hadn't, which I think was a huge mistake. But, Minister, uh, the vote for the UK... Uh, to leave without a, a deal. The vote against that is not legally binding, as you said. Uh, and the legal default position of the British government is, as it stands, to leave without a deal. Well, again, I think the significance in the fact that there is a majority, I think that we will find ourselves in two weeks' time back looking at, and, and every week we seem to have a significant vote, something which we hope mm. will make things a little bit clearer. We are no further on today than we were this time yesterday, unfortunately. The vote last night, mm. while it solidifies and it, it unifies the Conservative Party, which mm. was probably part of the intention, does not actually tell the EU what it wants because everything that it is proposing or not, mm. as the Secretary said this morning, has already been discussed, has already been refuted, has already been deemed to not work to avoid a hard work. Okay, there's good intentions and there's legal obligations and I I think this may be the point, Minister, and I'm referring to that interview that Steve Barclay gave uh, to Nick Robinson on BBC Radio 4 this morning. Nick Robinson asked the Brexit Secretary, is it still the government's legal default position, the policy of the British government to leave on the 29th without a deal. And this is what Steve Barclay said. Yes, it is, for the simple reason that the way you take no deal off the table is to secure a deal or to revoke uh, Article 50 uh, and not have Brexit at all, which I think would be catastrophic to our democracy and go against the biggest vote in our history. Now, there was a clear indication from Parliament. It wasn't the first time we actually had a similar indication in respect of a vote on the finance bill uh, in terms of the fact that many MPs are concerned uh, about the consequence of no deal. I share that concern as someone who oversees many of the plans on no deal. Uh, I'm not uh, one of the uh, MPs who says that no deal is something that can be managed in a bio, uh, benign way. I think it would be It is nevertheless the policy of this government we need to leave to get with no, no deal, deal off the table. at the moment. That is currently your policy because well, it's a, you do not have a deal. No, you're misunderstanding. It's not a policy, it's a reality. It is the fact that the majority of members of Parliament uh, triggered art- voted to trigger Article 50. There is no option, Minister. Well, I think what we're hearing very clearly there, and this is what has been happening for the past week or two, is a very clear attempt by the UK government to shift the onus back on the EU and indeed back on the Irish government. We're starting to hear this rhetoric that the UK don't want a no-deal scenario. They're putting a gun to our head. Well, That's what they're going to do. They're going to put a gun to our head and they're going to say, uh, we're going to leave without a deal and you're going to have a hard border. Michael, if anybody is suggesting that we should at this stage, because the UK cannot decide themselves how they get through and approve a deal that they have themselves negotiated over two years, mm. the fact that they are now trying to shift the onus back on us, back on the EU, it's simply well, not acceptable. The fact that the negotiation and the way to avoid a deal mm. has already been agreed through the withdrawal agreement 
it's quite it's quite incomprehensible to think now that the onus is being moved back to us to help them avoid the no deal scenario when they themselves they can't all they, of us in this position. They so can't we're not going they can't accept the backstop. You can't accept that. There's a legal obligation on them to leave without a deal. They're putting a gun to our heads. Are are, are they putting a gun to our heads, Minister? No, there is not a legal obligation on them to leave. Well you've just heard Steve Barclay say that there is. Because the majority of the House of Commons voted to trigger Article 50. That's a, a piece of legislation. It is the legal position of the British government. Steve Barclay has said a lot of things, a lot of which I would disagree with. So the position that we're in at the moment is that the UK themselves, because of their red lines, because of how soon they invoked Article 50, because of the negotiation, okay. that they agreed that they are now rejecting and that the Prime Minister who led the negotiation is rejecting the position is that they are the ones that have mm. the ability to take a no deal off the table. This is not for Ireland to compromise. You're asking people, and we saw over the weekend uh, protests, we saw events taking place in Northern Ireland on the border. Essentially, you're asking, or what the UK are asking, is for us to compromise and to tell those people, well, do you know what? The peace process, what you have worked on for years, what you went through in the past, it's not important and we're willing to compromise and we simply cannot do that. So compromises in the two years where we have worked with the UK, where they have asked for concessions, where they haven't been standing mm. on the sideline or outside the room, they have been there and they have gotten concessions and this is where we are now. We have a deal. We have a deal which will avoid a hard border. We have a deal which will protect the peace process and most importantly we have a deal which will allow us to negotiate a future relationship which we hope will result in us never having to use the backstop. So, so the so, only people who can take a no deal off the table are the UK. And so while what if they don't? Uh, and what if the upshot of this is that the British government says, take it or leave it? It's the deal as it stands without the backstop. You can take it or leave it. Will the Irish government say, leave it? Well, again, what I would refer to last night, and again, I said, and you rightly said as well, it's not legally binding. However, the figure of 318 supporting the mm. amendment last night, which rejects the UK leaving without a deal, mm. I think is significant. What is legally binding is that they have to leave without a deal. That's the default position as we speak, as we heard from the British Brexit Secretary, Steve Barclay, a moment ago. So, if they say, take it or leave it, what is our response? But that will not be the case, Michael, because we know that in two weeks' time there will be further amendments, there will be further votes. The most likely position is that the amendment which was passed last night, which rejects leaving... The word, the, the the word respect, respect Minister, and I'm sorry for cutting across you, and I am sorry for cutting across you, but the word he used was, that's the reality of it. You've, you've cut across me a number of times, so if I could please just finish what I'm trying to say, I think people would hear what I'm saying. The deal which was approved, or which the amendment last night, which rejects them leaving without a deal, while that does not have legal teeth, the Yvette Cooper bill, which does have legal certainty, which is, extends the Article 50, which requires legislation, or even the Dominic Greaves bill, which allows for further proposals to be put forward, the likelihood is that those amendments will be put forward again. And if this amendment, which is, it talks about the alternative arrangements, which talks about uh, looking at the backstop, is rejected, which it has already been rejected by the UK, then most likely we will see other Conservatives. And, and I hate to speculate mm -hmm. because this is all speculation, that there might be a possibility for those 
to be voted through at that stage. So there is a consensus to avoid a no deal. How we do that is still not certain for us. The best way to do that is by voting through the withdrawal agreement and the best way to address a lot of the concerns that people have on the withdrawal agreement and the backstop is by looking at the future relationship, by looking at those red lines, Mm. by looking at ways in which the backstop is no longer necessary, but which we, of course, have to have as part of it for insurance mechanism to protect the Good Friday Agreement and, importantly, our all-island economy. Okay, but is it not clear, Minister, that the last vote, which was the biggest defeat a British government ever experienced, was on the backstop because the same deal was voted on yesterday without the backstop and was passed by a majority? It was passed by a majority of less than 20. Um, The previous vote failed by 240 because I believe that there are many reasons why people voted against it. I absolutely don't agree that the backstop was the only reason that it failed so significantly. And I think if the Prime Minister were to spend this time engaging with all political parties, with all opinions and views as to the kind of future relationship that people want, as to the kind of Brexit that people want, then it would become very apparent that the backstop is not the only reason. I think it's been used as a a scapegoat at the moment, and I think the response from the EU has been very clear. It cannot be changed, it cannot be amended, and I think tellingly the conversation with Stephen Baker this morning, or Barclay this morning, shows that they actually don't have any other proposals. So we will find ourselves with further votes in two weeks' time. It's not good. It's not good for people's business, for their preparedness for trying to uh, have some level of certainty but you know I suppose we we cannot change where we are now what we can do is hold our nerve uh, and insist that the commitments that the UK gave that they uphold them And we did play out uh, that section of uh, the interview where he said uh, they'd explore the alternatives uh, and we would have laughed had it not being as serious as it is it was so ridiculous uh, but we have to leave it there for the moment Minister and thank you indeed for joining us here Thanks, on the program this morning That's the uh, Minister for European Affairs Fine Gael TD and me the East Helen McEntee Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, in January of 2017, uh, it's exactly two years uh, to the day, uh, mother walked in to find her 14-year-old son inappropriately touching his half-sister's genitals. Uh, The little girl in question was aged eight years of... uh, was aged eight. Uh, She... uh, Obviously, they got very concerned and an investigation ensued. And uh, the court report on this is very disturbing from most of uh, the papers uh, today. Uh, the boy in question is now 16. He signed pleas of guilty to five counts of oral rape and 44 counts of sexual assault between September 16 and uh, January of 2017. Let's talk uh, about issues relating to this with Fiona O'Loughlin, who's a chair of the Oireachtas Education and Skills Committee. Good morning to you, Fiona and thanks indeed for joining us. I'm not sure what your knowledge of that particular story is and I'm not going to ask you to comment on it. The reason I mention it is uh, that the boy said he was copying what he had seen on a pornographic website. Now, your committee has just uh, published a report which says uh, that children should be taught about the negative impact of pornography as part of a new revised sex education curriculum and perhaps, if anything, that story makes the case for you. Absolutely, Michael. Good morning morning to you and to your listeners. Um, I wasn't aware of that particular story and it's absolutely shocking. But what you're saying is relevant in terms of the report that we uh, launched yesterday. A lot of work has gone into this. We decided 
as committee two years ago, and Deputy Thomas Byrne is a member of that committee also, that we needed to look at RSE within schools. It's 20 years since the programme was introduced to schools, and at that point it was progressive, but society has changed quite a bit, and also I think we're more aware of the damage to society and to young people from social media and from accessing completely inappropriate websites. And you mentioned um, that that was uh, the defence in that young boy's case. And we feel, and we did hear certainly from organisations like Cyber Security, who would completely agree with the assessment that young people as young as seven and eight, sadly, are accessing some of these sites. And as opposed to society ignoring it, we feel that it's important that we give the opportunity to give factual information to young people and also talk about the negative impact of pornography. For too long, as a society, we've put our head in the sand about issues, difficult issues. We don't talk about them. And that's what we want to do in this process, we've made 25 recommendations to the Minister in relation to dealing with some of these issues head on. The world is very difficult for young people to navigate and we want to be able to give them the skills and tools to navigate this world safely and securely. And uh, I suppose that's one negative impact uh, that can result uh, from uh, lack of understanding sex or lack of education in relation to sex. Uh, And uh, there are many aspects to this, whether uh, it can result in homophobic or transphobic bullying or indeed somebody uh, identifying and understanding and being comfortable with themselves or whether uh, it's in heterosexual relationships and uh, there's issues of consent and that sort of thing. And all of these issues are uh, addressed in your report. You make a a lot of recommendations, but there's a a lot of people over a long period of time and I I think Thomas Byrne, who you mentioned, would be one of them who would feel that it should be up to the individual schools to look at uh, these issues and come to their own conclusions. Uh, The church would certainly feel that way uh, and indeed many parents would as well. The recommendations that we make in relation to that, um, and Deputy Byrne is, is fully behind these recommendations, is that regardless of the ethos of a school, that young people and our students need to learn detailed and factual information about contraception, about consent, about LGBTI issues. And really what we want to do is promote well-being and promote respect. That's incredibly important. And I can understand what you're saying, that some schools may feel uncomfortable Mm. because of their ethos. When we did our research in relation to the five different sets of hearings that we had, we actually discovered that some of the Catholic schools were better than non-faith schools. Mm. And one of the best standards was actually in an all-boys Catholic school. There is a disparity and a discrepancy between schools in terms of how they teach the, the pro, even the present programme. We're saying that programme needs to be updated and we're saying that every school should teach it regardless of ethos. Alright, and one of the recommendations is that children in school should receive education about the relationships and experiences of the LGBTQI 
community. Uh, I think there's many adults uh, listening to us uh, this morning who don't know what that is or would be able to outline what one of the letters stands for. Yeah, I know, and I, and I, and I accept that, and it was something that, you know, all of us in the committee, we come from different backgrounds, different mm. parties, and etc. And we had to grapple with some of the, the issues as okay. well, too. But I, I, I think one of the... Um, we're more comfortable now with the LGBT community, but I think in terms of then the, the, the whole transgender issue... Mm-hmm. Um, now has become something to the and fore. And t-, t-, t is for transgender. What's Q for? Well, queer. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, because that is a word that is used also. Okay, and I? Uh, that's for the I gender. That's the in between. Right. Okay. So it's 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 transgender really, and while we're certainly not recommending a situation where there would be. Um, intervention in terms of any medical or surgical intervention at that young age. Mm. Young people are grappling with their own sexuality and it is a confusing time for young people and we think that it's important that there is an awareness out there of the different types of sexuality that are there just to engender both respect for peers and also that young people in terms of confusion that they may have, that that they're not alone in this confusion and that um, in in some cases um, young people will go on then um, to have intervention at a later stage mm. but uh, and, and certainly some won't but it's about trying to address the difficult stages that, that young people go to and to encourage them to be open and to be able to talk about it. Uh, and undoubtedly it's hugely important uh, for the individuals involved, possibly the most important thing and rightly so for them given the way the world is, uh, but is it so important for those individuals that the rest of the world needs to be taught about the situation that they're in? Uh, because you're talking about a very small percentage of people, aren't you? No, we are talking about a small percentage and it's to encourage respect and compassion. A number of years ago, about four years ago, I was at a Corlin and Oak meeting in Kildare and I was incredibly impressed that the biggest issue for young people at that was that their concern for those in the LGBT community within their schools, that they felt understood and they felt respect and compassion. Having said that, mm. it did also come up during our research that there can be homophobic bullying within schools. And we want to make sure that that's monitored and dealt with correctly because it's a vulnerable time for young people anyway. But when they're questioning their sexual identity or orientation, it's it's a, an even more difficult time for them. So to try to support young people in all of this is, is very important. Uh, and what about religious beliefs or uh, other beliefs uh, for that matter? If people believe uh, that whatever about your identity, if uh, you act sexually, if uh, you're sexually active uh, in any of these ways, uh, well then it's wrong uh, and People will believe that for various reasons. Are they not entitled to that belief or uh, is it a a situation that they have to sit in the classroom in the view of the committee uh, and be told otherwise? Well, people are entitled to their own beliefs, absolutely. And that I, what what we are encouraging 
is that this information would be given in in a factual and compassionate way based on on health grounds as opposed to religion grounds. Uh, And I've no doubt that, you know, families then that have a particular religious ethos in their own families would have the opportunity to discuss that within that ethos at home. Obviously, parents will have and always have had um, the right to remove a child from a class if they so desire. So that is there. But we would be hoping, hoping that schools would not use that as an excuse not to deal with RSE within, within a school situation. And also we have to remember that there are young people that leave school early and that there's other organisations that deal with young people, such as youth clubs and Faroiga, and we would be hoping that they would look at implementing a programme also. And it's really just about supporting young people and navigating the difficult world that we live in, in terms of identity and in terms of uh, appropriate sexual and health behaviour and responsibility. It's been a a broad welcome, uh, I think, for the recommendations. Uh, I think many people would say uh, that uh, the recommendations are are long overdue rather than being progressive. uh, But as I say, they're welcomed in the the main uh, and uh, we'll see uh, how they may be implemented in time to come. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning to talk through some of them. Uh, Fianna Fáil TD, Fiona O'Loughlin is chair of the Oireachtas Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for the Environment, uh, Richard Bruton, has announced uh, a review of recycling, uh, and uh, this review will look at how a deposit and return scheme on plastic bottles and aluminium cans might be introduced. And indeed, it's uh, to take a look at how we might deliver a 90% collection target on single use plastics. The fact of it is, is that you could have a hundred percent collection target on ninety percent on uh, single-use t- plastics if they were banned outright, uh, and that was proposed in a Green Party bill by its uh, leader, Eamon Ryan, who's on the line now. And a very good morning to you, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you seem very cynical about what the minister is setting out to do here in announcing a review of these things, uh, because you also proposed uh, introducing a deposit and return scheme on bottles and aluminium cans. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry if, I, if I'm coming across cynical, but I am because um, Fine Gael are great talk at the moment for the environment. They're all for looking after the environment, all for cutting out plastic waste. And But but when it comes to actually doing it, they're really slow. It's all review and no real action. Um, we introduced a bill almost two years ago now, which, which got the majority of people in Dáil Éireann to support it, but, but the government have been blocking it with using a technicality of, of how we do our work. And it looked for three things. One, that we would ban single use of items like plastic straws, um, knives, forks, plates, you know, all all the Mm. kind of um, things that could easily be used instead. We could use wood instead or or, or paper or other alternatives. Um, Secondly, we wanted a levy on on the kind of single use coffee cups. You know, we're all going to get coffee in the morning to to push for those to be compostable and use the levy on the plastic versions to pay for the collection of the compostable cups so they do turn into compost. Mm. And then thirdly, and uh, and, um, very significantly, to introduce a deposit refund on plastic bottles and cans. 
um, aluminium cans mm. so that they would be returned to the shop uh, as we used to do if you're at a certain age when we were kids used to get money back on bottles when you brought them back and we think that's the only way of getting to that 90% recycling target rate um, now the minister so, so we introduced the bill two years ago a year ago the European Union came out and said uh, that's exactly what you have to do and we're going to force countries to do it if they don't do it themselves and as I said, what we're having a year later is the government saying, oh, well, we're going to review it and look at the options. Uh, and I think it should be more like um, one of those moments when we led, when we put the, the kind of a, a 20 cent on, on the plastic bags in the shop or when we introduced the smoking ban. Rather than dragging our heels and rather than struggling and fighting against doing the right thing environmentally, um, they should actually take, accept the bill, which has been agreed by all other parties, and make it happen. Uh, and instead, we have another review. Uh, um, I mean, it's going to happen eventually, because I don't think there's another way of doing uh, what we're committing to doing. But it's it's very frustrating. That well, it's maybe fun. the review will find a, a different way of doing it. I can't think for a moment uh, what else you might do. Either you ban these things outright or you introduce a, a measure uh, that will incentivize people to recycle them. Well, I think that is um, what the deposit refund scheme does. And, and I think banning would be difficult outright. Um, the, uh, you know, we do have aluminium cans. They actually have quite a valuable uh, recycling value. So, so putting them through a recycling system isn't a bad way of, uh, of, of providing those drinks. When it comes to plastic bottles, yeah, I've kind of moved away now. I find increasingly... I can say, do I really need to, you know, kind of, yes, we should be looking, I think, you know, uh, to looking at having water fonts everywhere mm. and people having their own kind of containers so that you don't have to do single-use throwaway. But I, but I think there are countries all over the world, in America, in Europe, in Australia, who do this deposit refund, mm. and it works perfectly well. Typically what you'd have in, in um, is, is you'd put in a, in one of the car parks of the shopping centres, you, you put in a machine where you can actually just, you plop the bottle back in, so it's a very kind yeah. of a automated system. You'd get a 15, 20 cent uh, credit, uh, which you could use in that or any other shop. Um, the value, of, the whole system is paid for primarily by the drinks companies. So, Coca-Cola or Britvic or, you know, people who are producing all these bottles, currently they, they pay an organization called Rehab to help set up the recycling system. You know, when you go to your bottle bank or whatever, that's all paid for by, by the industry, by Rehab. So, but they currently pay about a fifth of a cent for every bottle to contribute to that recycling scheme. We're saying that actually, no, you should, they should contribute a cent a bottle, one cent, uh, and that that would pay for all these um, machines that where you can collect the bottle and you're given the, the credit. I think the credit would go on your phone mm. so that, you know, it's a, everyone has a mobile phone now. Much easier just to swipe it and, and you get the credit and you build it up on your phone. Um, the, there'd be certain, there, there'd be money saved as well because when you get the recycling, the bottles in that way, you get very high quality material and it has a value mm. and it can be recycled. Um, 
and and it wouldn't be like it's going off to China because they're not going to take yeah. any more of our recycling. It would go, it would open up the opportunity of, of setting up an Irish recycling system. So there are lots of wins in this. And you'd, be, main, pay, you'd be paid to do it, in other words, or if you left it on the street, somebody would pick it up and go and get the money that uh, you've decided you didn't want. Uh, and that works well elsewhere, as you say. Yeah, and worked in our own memory. I mean, I'm old enough, I'm free oh, yeah. to say, Mike, mm-hmm. that I can yeah. remember bringing the Taylor Keat bottle back to the yeah. shop and getting five pence or threepence, I think it was at the time. But people don't so, need to be paid. People used to bring uh, uh, plastic bottles uh, to the banks uh, where you uh, deposit bottles now, the glass bottles and so on, and they got rid of them in every county council in the country. Yeah, and, and listen, people can. The, the place to put a plastic bottle at the moment is in You're the recycling in. bin, mm-hmm. um, along with the newspapers and cardboard. And so, you know, there is a mechanism. But unfortunately, um, for anyone who's involved in doing cleanups, I don't know if you've ever done one of these beach cleanups mm-hmm. or river cleanups. Yes. And a lot of people are now. It's a fantastic development where we're kind of people are taking action in their own neighbourhood to clean up. And unfortunately, typically in the most scenic places, uh, you know, on a beach. That's where people people tend to bring a plastic bottle because you're having a bottle of you know, drink of coke mm. or whatever on the beach, and anyone who does beach cleanups or river cleanups or canal cleanups or any sort of cleanup of the neighbourhoods, the tidy towns people will know this. That actually one of the biggest problems litter wise is with cans and bottles, okay. plastic bottles. So this is another way. I mean, again, it's the kind of the win 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 is that you get a higher level of recycling, you get less litter you get uh, the the consumer doesn't have to pay for that system. They get the 15 cent back. Mm-hmm. So, uh, OK, I mean, the government, we've been debating this with the government for two years. We've done lots of reviewing of it. And I just fear that they're, for whatever reason, they're ju- they're all talk, but actually very slow in action when it okay. comes to looking well, after our environment. We'll be talking about it for some time to come. Uh, it seems to be the way in this country. Uh, but I've run over time and I have to leave it there. And thank you indeed thank for you your Mike. time. Eamon Ryan is uh, the leader of uh, the Green Party and brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie